0: Welcome to Compliance Beat, the podcast for compliance and ethics professionals. We provide practical insights and answer your questions about compliance and ethics. Together we'll stay up to date on current trends so that your program stays effective. Brought to you by Moorhead Compliance Consulting. Here's your host, Eric Moorhead.
1: Welcome to this edition of Compliance Beat. The question today is, does the Yates memo increase my liability as a compliance officer? For those that aren't familiar with the Yates Memorandum, it's a September 9, 2015 directive from the Deputy Attorney General, Sally Yates, to the various U.S. Attorneys and the heads of other divisions of the Department of Justice that have criminal enforcement responsibilities. In a nutshell, what the Yates Memoranda discusses is individual accountability for corporate wrongdoing or in other words we need to find some executives and lock them up. In the years since this uh, memorandum has come out there's been a lot of discussion about what it really means and whether it really changes the scope of what the Department of Justice does with regards to charging individual humans with crimes related to misconduct that goes on inside of organizations. This talk has also generated not a little discussion about the potential liability for a compliance officer. But first let's take a step back and talk a little bit more about what the Yates Memorandum has actually done. I would suggest that its greatest impact has already been seen in the last year, and that impact is that we're talking about the Yates Memorandum. And that's not a small thing, because it allows not just you as a compliance officer to have a voice when you're talking to executives and senior managers about their potential liability and perhaps getting the attention of an executive or manager that perhaps you wouldn't have had attention with before, but it also provides a recent communication from the Department of Justice about the seriousness with which they take these sorts of cases. Add into this the complexity and uncertainty of a Trump administration, there might be some thought amongst the audience of executives and managers that perhaps this Yates Memorandum will be walked back in some respect. I think that's unlikely, and it's unlikely for one big reason. The Yates Memorandum did not change the law. Let me repeat that. The Yates Memorandum does not change the law. The same ability that the various US attorneys and various trial attorneys within the United States Department of Justice had the day before the Yates Memorandum came out existed the day after. At its heart, the Yates Memorandum is nothing more than a declaration. It's important because it comes from the Deputy Attorney General of the United States, but it doesn't really stake out any different approach when going after an individual charged with an offense related to commercial, or corporate crime. The second thing to keep in mind is that the line prosecutors, the career prosecutors, the civil servants that work at the Federal Bureau of Investigation and throughout the Justice Department are still going to be on the job and carrying out their responsibilities on January 21st, 2017. So for those investigations that have been undertaken in the last year, those are gonna continue on. And that's another important thing to keep in mind when you're talking about federal investigations. It is not possible to effectively gauge the impact of the Yates Memorandum one year out. Most federal investigations are years in the making and actual prosecutions follow even further after that. So the actual numerical impact, the number of individuals charged with offenses that are typically considered white collar, for example, can't really be judged in 2016 from a directive that came out in late 2015. But we all should kind of keep our eyes on the sentencing guideline statistics coming out in 2017, 2018, and 2019 to see if we do see a trend perhaps with certain offenses, and particularly offenses that are correlated to organizational investigations or organizational prosecutions. For organizations that are investigated but not prosecuted, that's gonna be a little more difficult to pull out of uh, available data. But for organizations that are actually charged with an offense, the Sentencing Commission does keep track of individuals that are charged with a similar offense or charged in the same course of conduct. And typically that number runs about 60% year to year. So almost two-thirds of organizations that are charged with an offense have an individual that's also at least one individual that is that's also charged along with the organization and in 50% of those cases or in other words 30% of all cases of organizations being charged with an offense there is a high level official an owner a board member a manager or senior supervisor that is charged as well in fact I think I've mentioned before you look at the sentencing statistics, it's not hard to make a case that actually the Department of Justice and the various US Attorney's offices that are prosecuting organizations are doing a pretty good job of prosecuting individuals as well, if you look at it from the perspective of the data anyway. That's not to say that the Yates memo was a solution looking for a problem because certainly the perception is that in certain cases individuals haven't been held accountable for corporate wrongdoing that was clearly the result of decision making that went on, particularly at the highest levels of the organization. But what any prosecutor will tell you is that looking at a particular conduct and having the feeling that that conduct perhaps is malfeasance and perhaps ought to be prosecuted and being able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law, that the conduct undertaken by those individual executives or managers was a violation of the law are two different things entirely. I don't wanna to get too far afield of, from the Yates Memorandum itself and the potential culpability for compliance officers, and I'm gonna get back to it. I promise you, I just wanted to lay some groundwork. But I would also mention that uh, along these lines, there has been the theory of theft of honest services and I would encourage you to Google that. And perhaps at some later date, I'll do a podcast on that and maybe bring in a guest to help us uh, walk through that concept. But shall we say that's an area of the law that there have been conflicting messages, both from the Supreme Court regarding the applicability and the ability to prove culpability at the highest levels of an organization for decision making uh, and that p- perhaps led to many of the scandals that also perhaps led to the groundswell of support for a initiative that is outlined within the Yates Memorandum. Now, I've already said that I think the biggest impact is that we're discussing these things, that we're talking about it, that it gives you another point of contact, another piece of material to discuss with managers, supervisors, and executives about their personal culpability that can lead to a broader discussion about what the organization is doing around compliance and ethics. And I think that's as valuable as anything. But uh, the other question is, is in practical terms, what, how might this actually affect prosecutions of individuals down the road? One area that I think is perhaps a little bit overlooked, but you can see it again if you look at the Sentencing Commission statistics, is this notion within the Yates Memorandum that, quote, absent extraordinary circumstances, a corporate resolution will not provide, quote, protection from criminal or civil liability for individuals. Where I think this might be important, and for those of you that are compliance officers or responsible for compliance in small organizations, where I think the rubber might meet the road here and perhaps some prosecutions down the road, is if you have a small organization that is essentially an alter ego or is effectively completely controlled by an individual, It has been the case in the past, and I've certainly seen it in my private practice days uh, years ago in Houston, that what we used to term as throwing the corporate entity under the bus would happen occasionally in these prosecutions where an individual that is essentially in control of most aspects of the organization engages in some conduct that is perhaps questionable, perhaps violates the law under certain theories, And to resolve the case, the corporate entity takes the hit. The corporate entity settles the case, takes a guilty plea. Uh, What this part of the Yates Memorandum uh, signals to me, perhaps, is in that some of these quote unquote alter ego cases, or cases where you have a smaller organization, a family-controlled organization, where there are one or two individuals that wield most of the power, their ability to throw the corporate entity under the bus might be compromised with a strict reading of the Yates Memorandum as guidance for the local US attorney or prosecuting lawyer from the Department of Justice. So that's one area to look out for. A second, which I've heard some commentary about over the last six months, is this notion of cooperation between the criminal divisions of the department and the civil divisions, as well as civil authorities outside the department itself. This memo talks pretty extensively about the other remedies that are available beyond criminal prosecution, including penalties, damages, restitution, civil se- civil forfeiture and civil seizure, exclusion suspension, and de- debarment from future government work. While it's always been true that the Department of Justice, particularly certain divisions of the Department of Justice, like the fraud section, have worked hand in hand with uh, civil components of the department as well as other agencies such as the SEC, this kind of redoubles that effort. And the one thing that I've heard from some practitioners is they feel like this uh, call to arms for closer cooperation and really pursuing civil remedies as well as criminal remedies is something that they think might have an impact long term and that they're seeing some movement there. I don't know enough about it and I haven't seen significant results in this area that are different from the results. Again, to a great extent, there's been a lot of cooperation, for example, with the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act between the SEC and Department of Justice, just as one example. But we might see more of that. And I think that the Yates memorandum uh, certainly calls for that. And again, too soon to judge, I think, because there are probably ongoing investigations right now that aren't even a year old yet uh, that won't bear fruit for a few years to come. So we'll have to just come back later and take a look at that. Now, I promise I haven't forgotten the original question. Does the Yates Memorandum signal a greater potential liability for a chief compliance officer or a chief ethics and compliance officer? This is really uh, the question that I've heard a lot uh, in the last year or so when talking to an audience of compliance professionals. I'm going to give you the ultimate lawyerly answer. I think it depends. I think that in certain areas, it's definitely true that there's increasing liability for chief compliance officers, and we can see cases developing. And that was true, I think, well before the Yates Memorandum, and the Yates Memorandum may have an impact greater than that as we move down the road. But, in, but specifically in the financial sector, we have seen cases where compliance officers have been held accountable, have been fined by the SEC, for example and have been at the core of the allegations against organizations regarding misconduct. Uh, Scott Killingsworth, an excellent attorney from Atlanta who spends a lot of time in our compliance space, has detailed this over the last few years. And I encourage you to uh, Google Scott Killingsworth and compliance officer liability or compliance officer SEC. And you'll find more than a few articles that he's written on this particular topic. But for the most part, it has been limited to a great extent in the financial sector. That's not to say it won't expand out from there, but certainly we have seen compliance officers that have been on the hook for conduct that they uh, either were involved in or that they were specifically responsible for. But to answer the question, I'm going to come back around to where I started. The chief impact of the Yates Memorandum is that we're thinking about these issues and we're talking about issues of culpability. I think that's the biggest impact with regards to the eventual culpability of a compliance officer with regard to misconduct. You're now on notice. Because these discussions are ongoing, because this is an issue, it's going to be very hard for a compliance officer to say they didn't understand the impact of their action or inaction when they came across misconduct or were complicit in misconduct. That ship has sailed. There was nothing before the Yates Memorandum that would have stopped the Department of Justice from going after a compliance officer for misconduct that violated the law, and nothing really changed. No law changed. No procedural rule changed on the date that the Yates Memorandum came into effect, but we're all on notice now. And I think that's the biggest change. So does the Yates Memorandum increase your liability as a compliance officer? I think the answer is probably yes, because you're now aware of it. We're discussing these topics. We're discussing them with the other executives and managers with whom this information might be applicable. And that obviously also includes ourselves. The upshot this week is, as a chief compliance officer, chief ethics and compliance officer, or simply a compliance professional, the Yates Memorandum puts us all on notice that our responsibilities are no different from the responsibilities and expectations for other managers, supervisors, and leaders within an organization. And that our condoning of, participation in, or turning a blind eye to misconduct or violations of the law can result In us individually having some responsibility for those actions. We're now on notice. This week we have three questions with Ted Banks. Ted is a partner in the firm of Sharf Banks and Marmor LLC in Chicago, where his practice concentrates on general corporate and antitrust matters. He's also president of Compliance and Competition Consultants, a firm devoted to assisting corporations in the development of effective and efficient programs in the areas of corporate compliance. Internal Investigations and Records Management. Formerly, he served as Chief Counsel and Senior Director, Global Compliance Policy at Kraft Foods. During his career at Kraft, His responsibilities also included supervision of complex litigation, negotiation of major corporate transactions, global records management, antitrust, and supervision of computer applications used in the corporate and legal affairs department. He's an adjunct professor of law at Loyola University Law School in Chicago, where he teaches corporate compliance to young and hopefully uh, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed future compliance officers. Throughout his career, Ted directed many substantial corporate transactions and dozens of litigated cases in antitrust and other areas. He supervised the $19 billion acquisition of Nabisco by Kraft and the $8.7 billion IPO of Kraft Foods Incorporated. He currently serves as a compliance monitor on behalf of the Federal Trade Commission and the Competition Bureau of Canada to ensure that the respondent companies comply with agreements or orders issued by those agencies. Ted is well known as a speaker and author of numerous articles. He's co-edited the Corporate Legal Compliance Handbook and his own multi-volume treatise, Distribution Law Antitrust Principles and Practice, which is now in its second edition. He's also been recognized as a super lawyer and was one of the attorneys who matter by the Ethisphere Institute and one of the 50 governance, risk, and compliance trailblazers and pioneers. He's also a well-known figure in the compliance field. Welcome, Ted. Thank you very much, Eric. Ted, can you talk a little about your career journey? How did you end up in your current role?
0: Well, I had an unusual path out of law school in that I started in an in-house law department rather than going to a law firm or to the government to begin with. And I landed in the Kraft Foods Law Department because I had taken a course in law school on the Robinson-Patman Act, one of the less important antitrust laws. But when it came time for an interview at Kraft, it turned out that the first case brought by the FTC when the Robinson-Patman Act was passed in 1936 was against Kraft Foods. And this had been a bane of their existence ever since. And so when I was able to talk about the Robinson-Patman Act as if I knew something about it, they said, wow, this guy, this guy knows his stuff. In, in other words, I, I, uh, I was able to uh, blab my way through the interview and, and got the in-house job. Fortunately, I was smart enough to keep my head low for the first couple of years uh, as I was figuring out what it meant not just to be a lawyer, but to work in an organization where organizational skills are probably equally important to, to legal skills. But when I got started, a lot of what I did had to do with antitrust. And even though we didn't have the word compliance back then, as it is used now as sort of a term of art, we were, we were really worried about that because we, we knew that we had to teach employees what to do and what not to do. We knew the consequences of a violation were severe, whether it be a civil penalty from a private plaintiff or a possible criminal penalty. So we got started with very early, com- what we would call today, compliance, Training courses and I remember the first project I worked on involved the use of uh, 35 millimeter slides in a, a carousel slide projector with state-of-the-art technology which meant that it was a synchronized cassette tape that had a narration to these slides about antitrust compliance and it was really involved, maybe the word is difficult, to, to make the slides, to develop the synchronized narration, to get it produced. I mean, all that stuff was, at the time, very exciting because we thought it was great technology. Today, we sort of shrug you know, what you can do with uh, a computer and, and PowerPoint and a microphone. But that's how I got started, uh, realizing that people needed to be taught what they should do and shouldn't do and was able to track the the technology as it developed and and build that into the compliance efforts I was making there.
1: Ted I'm I'm curious as to when you were using the the Kodak Carousel and the cassette tape back then if the the, the learners complained about the training being too long
0: <laughs> as they
1: no, do I, these days about online training.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think I think because the the slides were so expensive to produce we pro- it probably didn't take more than a half hour oh so so, so we you know we, i don't think it was too long, and and if they complained, I, d- I didn't hear about it in any case. <laughs> no, no, actually, that's a,
1: that's that that's a, It's interesting to think about the the development of of trying to impart this sometimes technical and difficult knowledge to a, a mass audience, and and sort of the 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 lengths we have come and the different tools that we've you know you are utilizing these days that that didn't exist uh, you know thirty years ago even.
0: Yeah, and and I think that actually I'm trying to think remember the sequence, but I think the next technological advance after that was actually using an overhead projector with transparencies. People of a certain age who hear this will will know what I'm talking about. Yeah, younger folks might not, but it was a big advance when we realized that we could prepare those transparencies on a uh, a copying machine and put 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 them in instead of paper and we'd be ready to go and and a lot of uh, a lot of the the work at that point was using overhead projectors and those had lots of problems I and mean, it wasn't the most elegant thing as you slipped the films one after another and dropped them and they got out of order and you know they they weren't that great to begin with but things progressed from there
1: Yep. Now, if you could go back in time and talk to your younger self before you entered the compliance field, if you had a piece of advice that you think uh, would be singularly important uh, to your younger self, what would that piece of advice be?
0: The most important thing that I learned the hard way was that whatever you're doing, you have to always do it from the point of view of the recipient, from the target audience. And in my case, it was employees i was was trained in the traditional way of of lawyers of making sure everything was perfect and every citation was in perfect form and every proposition was supported by a citation and wanted to make sure that if you're explaining the law, you explained all of the ins and outs and inconsistencies now that's wonderful for a audience of lawyers It's horrible for an audience of people, and it took me a while to understand why what I was doing was not as effective as it could be, because I was simply reteaching law school, and that is not the way that any compliance presentation should go. And, you know, I think we've all learned that nowadays, but I wish someone would have said to me, you know, you don't have to track the entire history of uh, resale price maintenance uh, through the Supreme Court cases and the lower court cases. Just say what the law is today and what the people should do. It took me a while to get that, but hopefully I've gotten it by now.
1: Yeah, I think that's... Uh... Uh, an issue. I mean, we tend to beat up on ourselves as lawyers in the compliance field for not communicating effectively to the employee population or, or people who are non-lawyers. But I think that anybody who has expertise in a particular area, if they're a subject matter expert on antitrust or or any other subject matter, it's it's sometimes hard to take a step back and say, okay, what's What's really the gist of this? What, if I were explaining this, for example, to my you know my my teenage nephew, well, how would I how would I explain this you know sometimes convoluted and complicated law in a way that makes sense and, and, and kind of step back from my expertise, if you will, uh, in, in that communication? I think that's hard to do.
0: Yeah, and I have seen that even with my, my law school students who who are uh, mostly younger. It's hard for me in the compliance class to break them out of the mold that's in all their other classes and and really say, no, I don't want you to regurgitate the law. I want you to do something that will work in the real world. And if, if, if I give them an assignment, for example, uh, write a policy about business gifts and entertainment, and they'll, they'll come up with lots of language that they've picked up somewhere and they think should be in the policy. And I said, okay, at the end of the day, if you're an employee and they handed you this thing, would you know what to do? And that that is something that I think needs to be hammered home in, in a lot of ways. I mean, it's one thing if you're writing a brief as a lawyer and there there you want your citations proper and, and you want to match whatever local rules are in effect, but you don't take that same approach when you're dealing with uh, most clients and particularly when you're dealing with people in a in a compliance setting so that that to me was an important learning uh, which I've tried to bolster over the years by focusing on the educational studies that say okay when you talk to a group how much do they actually remember even in the best of circumstances you know can you remember ten points about something and my takeaway is usually no and so if I'm talking about a subject, I like to boil it down to four points. And there will be point one, two, and three, which which is something substantive, and then point four of, if you're ever unsure, here's who you call. Yeah. And that they can remember. <laughs> but, yes. but trying to do more, I've got an hour, I better use it up and cram it full of stuff. Not the best, not the best approach.
1: No, no. I think that's been borne out uh, over and over again. And again, I, I think that we tend to beat up on ourselves as lawyers. But I've certainly seen people, uh, compliance officers with backgrounds uh, in other fields, that that you know, again, uh, you have to take a step back from your expertise uh, and 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 really think about the communication of that that's salient point uh, more than letting everybody know how much you know about a particular topic. At least yeah, there's yeah. there's a time and place for that, and that, that's not. And communication and training, usually. So, uh, lastly, I, I wanted to ask you if you could peer into your uh, compliance and ethics crystal ball for us. You've uh, been involved in this profession for a while. You've seen it grow. You've seen it change. Uh, what are one or two trends that you think are going to be
0: particularly important to all of us in the next couple of years? Well, I have always been interested in in technology, and and I think that every compliance officer, anyone. It, involved in compliance, is it's absolutely imperative that you stay on top of the technology. And this is in two dimensions. Number one is you have to master the technology that is in use by the, let's say, the employee population of, of your company or your client's company, so that you know how to communicate with them most effectively. and And this may mean using various social media sites, which you wouldn't think of as a compliance site, but maybe there's a way to use Snapchat for compliance. And it also means if it's a company where everyone uses their cell phones for everything, then you have to be there. The goal is always to make it as painless as possible to get the compliance information. Uh, don't make people work to have to find it have, it, have it come to them. The flip side of that, the other dimension of that is... This introduces a whole new area of compliance risks and compliance problems. Um, I don't think there has been adequate attention paid to the Internet of Things. So when you have a refrigerator that operates based on a connection to the Internet and has the risk of destroying all the food on the inside because of, of some glitch, is that a liability that has been addressed in compliance? Is it is the technology sufficiently robust so that the product should be on the market? People have started to think about the autonomous automobiles uh, as as a technology that incurs risk. and I, you know I think that's correct. we We really have to think about it so that our clients are aware not just of the coolness of the technology, but the fact that there are risks there. and the risk should be looked at in the context of human behavior. I have friends who shall remain nameless who have a Tesla with the self driving capability that was released. It is imperfect; we know that they know that they love it and use it all the time, notwithstanding the risks you know i'm and I'm talking to them and and i'm I'm horrified, but they say, Ah, oh, no, it's great. Nothing will happen to us, and that's perhaps something that a compliance officer can't address. But you need to understand the human factors as well as the technological factors in order to advise your client and say, okay, as you roll out this new technology, you have to consider all these things that might happen based on the way that people behave and the way they interact with this technology. So I think that's where there's going to be a whole lot of activity in the coming years, and it behooves all of us in this field to stay on top of it. Uh, Do we have answers to all of it? No. But if we don't think about it until people start dying, uh, it'll it'll be really too late.
1: No, that's definitely true. Ted, I can't thank you enough for giving us a few minutes of your time this afternoon to talk to us about compliance and ethics.
0: My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Eric. Thanks for listening to Compliance Beat. Check out our website, compliancebeat.com. This podcast is brought to you by Morehead Compliance Consulting. Be sure to check us out at moorheadconsulting.com.